And there came a day, a day unlike... Wait, no, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks and... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsi, oh, damn it. Episode 101 of Panelology. I'm Alex. I'm Jenna. And I'm Brian. Hello, everybody. Hello. How are we So is this where we just say that last week's episode was an April Fool's joke? <laughs> <laughs> A joke provided by April Fools. several April Fools. Oh, yeah. I'm not an April Fool yet. No. I am. Well, if you're listening to this, I am. Yeah. Wait, time travel. <gasps> Wibbly wobbly time and rhyme stuff. It's like a werewolf thing. It's like around the full moon. That's yeah. good. Werewolves time travel? <laughs> yes. Sure, why not? Okay. Mm-hmm. Like chronotropy. <laughs> oh. TM, 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 TM. You want me just to start that one over again? No. Nice. Okay. In case anyone's wondering, we're all very tired because it's early in the morning when we're recording. Two of us of are the, the afternoon. Two of us are in the process of moving and or house hunting. Yes. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> don't want to talk about Earth stuff. Uh, Dark Knight's Metal, number six. Metal! This book is so metal. No. Um, this, is, uh, this is our conclusion. It is. Yeah. The um, end of the road, sort of. Yeah, yeah, it, it very definitely feeds right into what's coming next, um, but it, it does end our story with the dark multiverse and that kind of thing. But it, like, I am kind of, I guess, not at this point surprised at how much it's changing the DC. Mm-hmm. I, I would say universe, but it's bigger yeah. than that, right? Um, but when it started, I had no idea it would have this much impact and this much effect. Well. And you and I started to talk about this before we recorded and decided we'll we'll have the conversation on air. Uh, You had said that for you, you felt like it was a stronger start than than finish. And I think, uh, like looking back at that, I think part of that was just the timing, the delays. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that those, especially these last two issues kind of got bumped and then this one really got kind of pushed back i have a separate theory i think there's truth to that okay i definitely think timing was part of it but i also were i to hazard a guess uh and this is purely speculative would would suggest that this went from being the capstone of snyder and capullo's batman run to doing double duty as also the beginning of Snyder's Justice League run. Like, I think this probably had kind of that... You know, we talked about it a little with, with uh, Secret Empire. The ending of the event became the springboard for something more than it was intended to be. Yes. Would be my guess. Yep. Um, which is why you get kind of the coda on this one. I think probably if that if none of that were happening, 
this would have ended six pages earlier. Well, and we talked about uh, the first two issues of this. We talked so much about how it was just big, dumb fun to yeah. read. It became not that because it was doing this other stuff. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying it wasn't fun to read. I'm just saying it wasn't the same feeling. Okay. Well, it became a different beast. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the other thing I think that didn't help it was the fact that because of those delays, some of the things that were coming out of it have already come out. Sure. Right? Um, so Now, yeah. all that said, I loved the hell out of this. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I re- like, yeah do not get the yeah. wrong impression that I did not enjoy this, because I did very much. Um, and at this point, I have to, I don't think I could talk about how much I love this without calling spoilers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's spoiler. We, we like the book, if, especially if you've been reading it, definitely finish it off. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Spoilers. Um... The Batman versus Batman Who Laughs fight is <laughs> my favorite thing Scott Snyder has ever done, I think. It is really, really good. I'll say that. Um, hey, Jen. Yeah. If you're Batman. If I'm Batman. And you plan for everything. Uh-huh. And you're planning to fight Batman. What's the one thing you would fail to plan for in your fight against another Batman? Um... Winning? <laughs> Him teaming up with the Joker. Oh, shit. Like fighting alongside with. Yeah. That's great. Earth Zero Batman and Earth Zero Joker team up to fight the Batman who laughs. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Batman who laughs has Batman on the ropes and he's shot him with the gun that was, was used to shoot their parents. Mm-hmm. And Batman just this says, do best. it. And you see... Sticking through the Batman Who Laughs chest, the uh, rod with the bang flag, flag on hanging it. out, sticking <laughs> out his back, and then it cuts to the Joker, and the two of them start fighting him together. Yeah, nice. Yeah, the other the other nice one is is in their kind of climb through all of these dark multiverse things. Wonder Woman gets to fight alternate versions of Wonder Woman also. So there's like a Cheetah Wonder Woman, and there's a Giganta Wonder Woman, and what? yeah, that's pretty cool too. Yeah, there's a lot of one, there's a lot more Wonder Woman in this than I expected from the beginning. There is, there which is. I think goes into the whole building the Justice League. Yes, we also get the inciting event for what's kicking off the whole No Justice run and the New Justice banner after it. Uh, the source wall is broken. Mm. They break the source wall yeah. in in fighting Barbados. They shatter through it. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, if you're a longtime DC fan, like, literally, that is that is the limit. That is yeah. the edge. That is what you do cannot go beyond until Oops. now. Oops. Until now. And it's funny. Um, it really, it made me have a lot of consent. Like, it opened up so many thoughts in yeah. my head. Like, like. Oh yeah, DC and Marvel are definitely doing a crossover. Well, like, <laughs> like, 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 it just opens that up to, mm. Yeah. Well, and we talked about the source wall too, and going beyond it. We've been beyond the source wall, source wall, source wall once before recently. Uh, we've in been bug. We've been into the source wall, right? Did he go beyond it? I thought he was on the other side of it. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe I know. He he, I know. He went into it. He definitely that's went where further he saw... than you're supposed to. be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you get kind of a six or so page coda on the end of this that is really the beginning of Snyder writing the Justice League. You get Batman giving the we did it. This is our one night to catch our breath before the next thing comes. Speech. Yeah. 
Um, and, and we see Bruce Wayne throw a Tony Stark party. With a Swamp Thing and a bow tie. That was the... Yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. Aww. I'm talking Swamp Thing formal wear. Yes, exactly. Nice. Is my jam lately, because we had that issue of... Uh, or it was in... It was in Cave Carson Swamp Thing where he had the little lapel. Lapel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, semi-formal Swamp Thing is my jam. Uh, and then it ends with... Batman's plans to rebuild the Justice League headquarters. Like yeah. the terrestrial league nice. of... Nice. Yeah, the Hall of Justice. Hall of Justice. Yes. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Like you see the blueprints for it. Yeah. Yes. Very cool. So. Yeah, and I don't know if it was cooler that Damien was playing, uh, you know, lead guitar for the band, or that Alfred was on drums. It was that Alfred was on drums. <laughs> with, with, with like a tie around his yeah. head as a headband. Like, yes. But he was just... Rocking out. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh so much fun. Hey Jim. What? Tell me about Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider Man number three oh two. The Spectacular Spider Man. Um This is more of them in the in the past but not their past. Um and it's consequences from the last book, but it's like big damn consequences. Yeah, like Yeah. <laughs> Brian can't even. I can't even. <laughs> um, oh, did you read this, Brian? I did. Okay. Did I didn't I have it you didn't oh, have it yeah. on your list. It's what? Yeah. Picked wait, I thought you did. Oh, it's one of them that I missed on my list and picked up at the store because oh, gotcha. somehow it just didn't get on my list. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um No, I forgot what I was saying. That's not your fault, that's me. Because I'm tired. Um, <laughs> big consequences? Big, big, big consequences. Yeah, so so it was really cool in the last issue um, to get to see older Peter and younger Peter teaming up to fight all these bad guys that Peter's like, oh, wait, I know where they're going to be. Come on. And then we get to see sort of the fallout from that in this one as yeah. far as Green Goblin is concerned. Well, um, what? I was going to say, one of the things I really love about this, building off... I think I said the thing I loved in the last issue the most was old and young Jonah. Oh, yeah. Jonah's the one who fucks up. Yeah. And I think yeah, it he parallels ruins it. Yeah. really nicely who fucks up an amazing Spider-Man and tips off. Yeah. Norman. It's like both timelines, Jonah's the yeah. one who screws it up. Yeah. Yeah, damn, Jonah. Come on. And in one case, you see it's with the best of intentions, and in the other, in this one, it's... With the worst of intentions. Yeah. With, with traditional classic Jonah intentions. I yeah. do love how he, he tried. He did try yeah. to say, no, that's not real. It's a placeholder photo. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, why would you have chosen a child? Come on. Yeah. Like, turns out it's probably a really good thing this is not their timeline. Because, yeah. oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Because they are wrecking it hard. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, Chip, Chip you were right. It got, it got dark it did. before it's going to get it better. Did. Here. Shit yeah. got mm. real dark. Are we going to go in spoilers on this one? Uh, we can. Before we do, I want to say one thing. Yes. And then we can call spoilers and clarify it. Mm-hmm. We also get, as Chip promised, the reveal of whether or not Teresa's a Parker. Indeed. Now Indeed. we can call spoilers. Indeed. Yeah. So Teresa's a Parker. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa's a Parker. Now here's the but, thing. But is she a Parker in our Ex- universe? That just, was that was yeah. That was exactly my question. Yeah. Like, I get that it is their past, but it's also not their past. So maybe not. So far, until they showed up, nothing had deviated that we know of. It's true that we know of. Right. Yeah. 
It would be I, cool to have I, her. Def- I, I can. I think it's very clear for the foreseeable future, at least in mm-hmm. Marvel Universe, she, she is going to be Teresa Parker. Yeah. She is going to yeah. be a Parker. Yeah. Well, and Chip said we would get an answer, right? So yeah. I yeah. think this is the. Answer. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was really cool. Also, speaking more on the how fucked up Peter has made things. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, <laughs> Norman shows up to Peter's house and has tied up Aunt May and knocks young Peter the fuck out. And that's after he blows up old Jameson in yeah, his, for real. like dead, in his office. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. I'm glad I had a bad feeling about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little did he know what he would do, right? Oh, Fuck. my. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm worried for old original Nick Fury at this point, because like, yeah. all the old people involved in this are not making out so no. well. He could end up losing another eye. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Funny, not funny. Um, yeah. No, this is really fucking good, and... It is probably my favorite spider book right now. It is really good. So so good. And so, so I, good. I still love that that nostalgic art feeling art yes, that's in this. It's, it's beautiful. So good. Yeah. So pretty. Let's go to Mara, Queen of Atlantis number two. Oh damn. Okay. I again really, really, really love this book. Um I think very clearly that Abnett has, he knows what this story is going to be um, because he is definitely setting the pieces exactly where, mm-hmm. where he wants them in this. <laughs> um, and yeah, Ocean Master is back in full costume, full powers, like, and he goes to confront, he goes to tell Arthur and Mara that he's returning to Atlantis, right? Well, and, he, thinks, he thinks Arthur is dead. Right. Well, so he he goes to the lighthouse to 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 basically find out and say, you know, to, to see if Arthur is dead, to find out, and then to give them the courtesy of basically saying, by the way, so I'm going back to fight for Atlantis now that, yeah, um, and of course runs into Mara there, and shit goes bad. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I really enjoy about the way this issue is set up is. So often, Ocean Master is just mustache-twirling villain. Yep. And you get the shades of that that still feel consistent. He is very definitely still a villain. He's still very full of himself. Right. He's still very entitled. But between having found a family on Earth, he's a little more sympathetic. And between... the fact that he is set up to just have enough distrust in Mara, because mm-hmm. he's getting all of this secondhand through her, he doesn't really have reason to know, especially with her calling herself queen, whether this is not her fulfilling her original mission of killing Arthur and taking over for Zebra. Right. Right. And we know that's not the case, but he doesn't. And I think that that ambiguity for him helps play him as more than just more than just obstacle. Yeah, he definitely still has that Atlantean ocean privilege going on. <laughs> yes. But uh, yes. Oh my god. But um and of course Mara is without her powers right. or at least yeah. without her full power like it's a super strength. Um so you know the fight between them is is pretty much pretty one-sided. Um 
And I just, like, I need more Tula, too. So, yeah. that's that's my other comment. Uh, and there's a bit of a family reunion at the end of this, too. Uh, there is, yeah. Ocean Masters, like, fiancé and kids. Oh. Yeah, as he's, yeah. A, as he's about to kill Mara. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Get enough pal. Daddy, what are you doing? And then it comes to... Yeah, like, like I, well, and that's kind of where I was going with her without her powers. Yeah. Like, you're, I was left at a point where literally that build-up to that, I was like, how? literally, how is she going to get out of this? There's yeah. no, like, unless, like, the Justice League comes in or some stupid deus ex machina that's really not part of this story. Yeah. And then when they show up, I'm like, oh, no, that, that, that actually works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Breathless number one. Man, this book, I got this book on a whim because it's Black Mask and is yeah. number one. So I was like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah. All right. We do that a lot. We do. <laughs> this was so good. It was so and good. And not at all what I expected. Yeah, I remember. <coughs> I remember we talked about this in solicitations. Yeah. And I think I put it on my list. I don't remember if either of you guys I had. did not. Mm-mm. And I remember just finding the way it was described as, I don't know, reading it and thinking, I don't know how that's going to work. Because they had pitched it as Buffy versus Big Pharma. Yeah. Now, granted, I've never really watched much Buffy. But that idea, from what I know of that, of versus Big Pharma, that didn't sit in my head. Like, that just did not mesh. Reading it, I get it now. See, and I get it less. Unless they build a bigger team a, a big like a scooby gang um I, no yeah Isn't buffy that, buffy it, became it, a lot less about buffy herself right. than it did about that whole group of yeah know. so i guess it's the tonality and like there's a there's a sense of humor in this i did not expect yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. it's much less serious than people who study cryptids discover cure for asthma asthma and get in the crosshairs of Big Pharma. Sounds oh. like it would be. Yeah. It sounds like it's supposed to be like a, a dark. So it's it's the cryptid piece that they're pulling in as the, yeah. as the quote Buffy. And thing. I'm guessing okay, there's going to be kind of a Monster of the Week vibe okay. to well, it. I would say that Grace Isley sort of has a Willow vibe to her. Okay. In that she's a lesbian and talks really fast. There you go. It's definitely, I think, that sense of humor for me is, again, not having watched much Buffy, not having the specifics, right. but like that, what I understand to be the tone of it. Yeah. Kind of that humor is a defense type yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Like, there's a scene where the first time you meet Grace Isley, she's running late for work. She's supposed to be helping the main character with an autopsy of the scripted. And she shows up and she's going on and 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 on about... This new commander who she got to do a ride-along with yesterday and has a thing for. <laughs> Cut to a few pages later, the, the main character meets this commander. She's like, look, I need your name and I need your number. So I can do the, some goddamn work. Only way I will ever get peace <laughs> and work done in my lab again <laughs> is if I can give Grace Isley your number. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So that is a little Buffy-ish. Yeah, okay, I can see that. All right. And is the main character kind of a chosen one type? No. Okay. Oh, well, okay. Not as far as we know, at least. Well, yeah. She accidentally cures her asthma when some organ inside of the script, it explodes in her Ah, face. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good book. It's it's a lot of fun. I am excited to keep reading this in singles. 
Wow. Yeah. That's that's, that's a that's hell of an endorsement. That's high praise. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's high praise. <laughs> good, good book. <laughs> that's the Nick Cage. That's high praise. <laughs> okay. Doop-a-doop-a-doop. Uh, my notes are organized a little differently this week. Mother Panic, Gotham AD number one. Mm. So of the the season two Young Animal stuff coming out of Milk Wars, this is probably this is probably the book I was most interested in based on what it set up during that event. Like how it was how it described the change. Yeah, yeah. like the the others I don't think spent quite as much time introducing new ideas during the event. Right. Whereas this this was the one that was it was Mother Panic versus Mother Panic Batman. Mm-hmm. You see in the the Milk Wars version of the world, Batman is running uh the the organization that created Mother Panic, he's using it to breed more robins. You get this really cool comparison between the way Violet was trained and the way Bruce brings in robins and her yep. rejection of that as well as one of the kids she saves demanding to be her sidekick. Exactly. Um, so you get all that introduced there, and you start basically hitting the ground running here. Yeah, yeah. Like you're you're right in it, and then when this comes back, Violet's in the wrong Gotham, probably a little bit in the future, and probably not the future of the main Earth. Correct. Uh, she's looking for her mother first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Because her mother in this world is somewhere else, and we learn where. Uh, the only ally she has and can find is Ratcatcher. Right. Who is in her house. <coughs> Who is in her house. <laughs> and the only lead she can find is this... And I love, I love the detail of this character just sitting on the bench... Because it ties back to something that Snyder did in his Batman run. There's this character in a uh, like purple and green hoodie just sitting on a bench on the pier. Singing this song. And eventually you learn that this person is Violet's lead. Mm-hmm. And this person uh, used to be a rogue. And as she puts it, I don't care about you or your boyfriend. I just want to know where my mother is. Huh. It's the Joker. It's like the sad, defeated Joker who has lost Batman and has no purpose anymore. Uh-oh. Yeah, what, and just sits on the bench. Whatever this timeline is, Batman disappeared from, what? and Damn like it. he says that he made a mountain of bodies trying to lure him back out or, or bring him, and he never showed up. So he has nobody to fight. So he just kind of gave up. Yeah. yeah. Holy crap. All right, yeah. maybe I do have to read this. Yeah, Damn um, it. you also. I, he says, if you no. want to find, if you want to find Batman, if you want any help of that, then there's one person. Oh no, well, not just Batman, but anyone. You want to find anyone? Yes, there's one person to talk to. Mm-hmm. Catwoman. So I guess next oh, issue we're going to see her track down Selena. Yes. Oh shit. There is. I really, really like the change specifically in this book because. There was always a bit of a problem with Mother Panic fitting in the continuity of Gotham to me. A like, little I, bit. I, I think she could, but like she either had to go kind of all in and be more part of it, 
or kind of somehow be taken out of it. Like, it didn't always make... It was kind of one of those fringe continuity things. Yeah. And this makes it, I think, a whole lot easier for them to do whatever they want with her in Gotham. I think that's true, yeah. Um, And by the way, Jen, just for Fennec Fox, you will be reading this book. Oh, Oh, damn it. We we see Fennec Fox... uh, and again, the morality in this book is still super gray. Um, we see <laughs> Fennec Fox like, stop a bodega robbery. But also now she's basically getting protect, or getting protection money. Yeah. Oh, okay. In the form of food, because Violet has no resources and someone's got to feed this family and I guess it's going to be Fennec Fox. All right. Yeah. Yeah, um, she's like, well, okay, I'll keep protecting you from villains and hoods, but you have to give me stuff. Little, little mini mafiosa. <laughs> yeah, but she but she wants food, not right. money. Right, well. yeah. Uh, and the last thing we get, and then we need to move on, is there is definitely some connection between Joker and Violet's mother, because they're singing almost identically the same song. Yes. Throughout this issue. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Weird. Oh, very, very. Moon Knight, Jen. Yeah. This is sort of the conclusion of the Raw stuff. I mean, I I assume that it is the conclusion of the Raw stuff. Um, Definitely. We get to see Mark, you know, go go back into himself and and draw and find out what his superpower is. His real superpower. (laughs) Hey, guys, Moon Knight's not superpowered. Um, But it was really, really funny to, to watch him, you know, Talk to himself and and or talk to each other in himself. I don't. How does that work? Hold on. What's His the personalities here? talk to themselves. They talk to themselves inside of him. Yeah. Yep. Within his sure. consciousness. Yes. Go for it. Yeah. I I'll figure out the right wording for that. I will. I'll do that. Um. It was really cool watching them. You know, figure this out. Learn this moment. Like, yeah. oh no, he he may have the sun god's powers because he believes in himself. But guess what? We believe. <laughs> Oh, wholeheartedly they believe this. Oh, yes, they do. Oh, it was so good. And perception. That moment was so good. Perception begets reality. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? And I think that's kind of, that ends up kind of being the theme of this whole arc is belief is power. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Brian. Yes. Jessica Jones, number 18. Uh, this is the last Bendis episode. Uh, episode. See? <laughs> See, Damn it, Mark. I knew we were going to do it. I knew it. I knew it. Infecting us with that word. Uh, the last Jessica Jones issue by by Mr. Bendis. I think one of the rules is take a drink when someone says episode. And, and Gatos. Um, I don't have drinks, And drink, it is. He, okay. he has a whole page at the back that t- talks about this uh, in the back matter. And it is his his story that is Jessica's perfect day, like oh. like shit. And like, of course, she doesn't know this and doesn't think this is what's happening. But like, she really gets her perfect day. She gets a she gets a case brought to her, and she's able to resolve it that day. And like, she gets paid on time. She gets paid for it. Yes, <laughs> yes. And like, like literally everything about it goes goes wonderfully and he was like this is my like even people who have the life and the circumstances that jessica has every once in a while every once in a while you get that perfect day Mm -hmm. and he said and i felt like i owed that to jessica and like this is how she yeah i was like oh 
Oh man. <laughs> now I will point out one of the things, and I have no idea if he if this is insight, anything else. He says something about at the very end. He said, So I think, you know, I know enough to never say never in comics, right? He uh-huh. said, but this is probably truly my goodbye to Jessica, right? Um, but, because she's Marvel right. and he's, yeah. yeah. He said, um, so I, I guess this is it, unless there's that inevitable Marvel-DC crossover and somebody has to punch mm. Jessica. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but he talks about how how this character has grown so far beyond what he ever expected right it's really really good and it's got like i I don't even i can't it would have my quote of the week but they would all be so long that i'm not going to actually do them (laughs) like i no, and there's a re like it it, without the setup to it 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 doesn't have the payoff but like you have to read this just for just for the the thing but her her talk to the 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 armadillo's girlfriend Mm mm-hmm like that's who she's hunting down is the armadillo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And like they're comment about who he is and like all of these heroes have fought him, but like none of them remember because he's just this. Oh. Yeah. Which is why he's so upset about things is that he never gets recognized. Yeah. It's it's truly wonderful. Like everything, it's kind of the perfect story as well. Like right. everything about this particular like and it does not tie in with anything else. You could go pick up just this issue and read it and be perfectly fine. So do that. Cool. Uh, I picked up Cyberforce number one, the relaunch of the image book Cyberforce, hmm. about which I know nothing. Uh, I picked this up for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. It is co-written by Brian Hill, Ooh. who is taking over Detective Comics after James Tynan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really good. It is... I do not even know like what the character's code name will be, but it's about this man and his daughter. He has been uh, injured. She is given the option to basically sign a, him up for a program that will give him like cybernetic arm and leg and replace these body parts that have been destroyed, or essentially just let him die. So she picks the okay, no, save his life option. Right. Wow, that'd be a really short series, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he wouldn't want that. All right, it's over. <laughs> It's so, a one-shot. Cool. He wakes up later, and of course he hates being part robot, all that jazz. He just wants to see his daughter. They make him go through therapy and do all that before they'll let him see her. And the big twist ending, so spoilers, I guess, is she's been in a wheelchair this whole time. Part of the deal she made was she also got her legs. Oh, okay. So she's also enhanced. There's also... Be, the two of them are now both being leveraged to go fight the terrorist who uh, is basically trying to shut down like internet and technology and things like that that are screwing up the world as they see it. Uh, so they're both going to have to go fight this this terrorist together and hmm. hunt them down. Okay, but it was it was well well written. It was a quick read. I really enjoyed. Not a quick read. It was a swift read. It, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, uh, Says what it needs to. It doesn't get in its own way. It's not super, super talky. It's a good and efficient like first issue. So nice. I, Very it, was, cool. it is not a book I would have ever ever picked up otherwise, probably. But uh, I dug it. Uh, Jen. Mm-hmm. Lockjaw number two. <laughs> Man, I cannot believe that I didn't read this first one. Although I am still very worried because it is a good, good boy book. Come on. Something shitty's gonna happen. It's just gonna, not to lockjaw, but to 
probably one of his cute, adorable little siblings. Siblings. Yeah. What a D man. Or to D-Man. Or to D-Man, yeah. Because he's a good, good boy, too. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> How much of your jumping on this book had to do with the fact that the cover referred to Kazar as Abzar? Uh, yeah, every bit of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, Abzar, as soon I as mean Kazar. As soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah. And when I got to the end of the first issue, I was like, <laughs> D-Man is me right now. <laughs> you, <laughs> you beautiful piece. Um, yeah. It it was really fun. This fun this this fun fun book. Um, but D Man is this is the best version of D Man I think I've ever yeah. seen. It's ever. really really good. Like He's, like it makes you want him to get his powers back somehow. Yeah, or <laughs> or even if not his powers, just yeah. like bro, get happy. Yeah, exactly. Please, yeah. come um, on, D Man, hear the song that we're singing. <laughs> <laughs> come on, get happy. <laughs> oh, adorable. That's um, the P family. <laughs> So this this issue takes place totally in uh, what's it called? Savage Land. Yeah, Savage, Savage Land. Land. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Don't know why I couldn't remember that. Gonna say Jin's fantasies. Well, yeah, dinosaurs and beautiful men. Come and, on. And the beast. And puppies. Uh, no, the beast. <laughs> the beast. I'm sorry. The beast. Right. <laughs> Man, I'm I'm telling you what. Like that dog would bring her wolves up to me one time, and I'd be like, I will help you do anything. You have a pack of wolves that you control. No, not just wolves. Giant fucking wolves. Yeah, dire wolves. Dire wolves. Dire wolves yes. <laughs> but yeah. I'll be like, I am your human, please. <laughs> I bring you lots of pets and food. Yeah, and then we we get uh, we get a bit more of the kind of overarching what's going on yeah, behind the scenes. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we at least get an idea of who who everyone will be teaming up with next. Oh, oh yeah, Indeed. did you see the cover at the, uh-huh. uh, for the next issue? I did not. I did not pay attention to it. <laughs> yeah. Does whatever a spider hip can. <gasps> well, okay. Yeah. I could have I could have guessed that one, yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alright, Brian, uh-huh. Champions 18. Uh, Champions. Um, this is the last issue by Mr. Mark Waite. So, uh, this is another last issue. Hey? Hmm. Um, and I feel it's only appropriate that, uh, that I talk about this one. Um, because of how much you've complained about Viv and how this resolves it? Uh, it does. As a matter of fact, we're going to call spoilers right now. Spoilers. Um, yeah, Viv gets her, her synthesoid body back. Yay! Nice. <laughs> I'm so happy. Uh. Um, yeah, but the, the the team is all there, and it talks about how you know they're going to be moving forward uh, with Wasp and Ironheart. Yep. And... Yeah, I'm I'm super excited. This was a this was a nice conclusion, and it wraps yeah. up everything that's kind of been outstanding. Um, we get to say goodbye to somebody, mm-hmm. which uh, if you know about what's going on with the original youth X X Men from X Men Blue, then uh, we're saying goodbye to Cyclops. Which I will say, this issue is the most I have ever liked Cyclops. Absolutely, like <laughs> like even people who don't like Cyclops has to go. Okay, you know what? At this point, he's not—he's not a complete and total who he will be. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> like basically, he has oh. this big goodbye with Kamala, where he says, "I'm going to miss you guys because yeah. I could be me and not team leader." Aww. Yeah. yeah. I could just yeah. I don't. I don't have to be what I'm expected to be. I can just be who I am. Yeah. It's like, well, shit. He should just stay and be that, and maybe people would like him. <laughs> but he's making the wrong but responsible decision. Yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> Which is his character. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so you kind of get to see where it starts? Yeah. Maybe so, yeah. <laughs> you actually literally do get to see where it starts. You oh. get a little Cyclops origin. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Um, that said, it's a great wrap-up. Uh, do not jump off this, because I think Jim Zub is going to do amazing things with this book. Yeah, and they're going uh, they're going inter- international. Yes. Yeah. All right. Is it still good? Swift clip. Mm-hmm. Swift clip, everybody. Swift mm-hmm. clip. <laughs> Animosity 13. Brian, go. Uh, our, our main person becomes Queen Bee. Jimmy's Bastards number seven. Brian, go. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> Jimmy breaks out of the mental institution and is on his way to stop his progeny. Abbott number three, Elena starts to get some answers, but doesn't like any of them. Batman Beyond 18, every Batman eventually gets his Robin. Demon, Hell is Earth, number five, Brian. Uh, Belial takes over the world. (laughs) Detective Comics, number 977, uh, Tim gets the pitch from the devil. Hmm. Doomsday Clock number four, Brian. The origin of the new Rorschach. Uh, Flash number 43. It looks for a moment like Barry is actually going to make things better, and then he makes them even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Motherland's number three, Brian. Uh, You will never hear the word Shutterbooth activate and feel the same way again. Teen Titans number 18. Uh, Beast Boy perhaps should re-examine his current life choices. Terrifics number two. Uh, we see the team come back from... Damn it, not the Phantom Zone. The uh, Dark Universe. Dark Universe, yeah. And we learn that uh, they are definitely bound together going forward. Mm. Trinity number 20, Brian. Um, hmm. Yes, Steve Trevor makes a stupid mistake, and uh... and it's a day ending, and why? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Trinity team finds him dead. <laughs> no, oh. but but not the same. <laughs> Wonder Woman number forty three, Steve Trevor, and. I just love the way he says the name Steve Trevor. <laughs> Steve Trevor. Steve Trevor. And Jason, Jason yeah. have a really disgusting conversation about whether the proper uh, possessive pronoun for Wonder Woman is my angel or our angel. Yeah. I yes. was like, I was like, you guys gotta be fucking kidding me. Yeah, I spit the issue throwing up in my mouth. Yes. Uh, Transformers versus Visionaries number four. Who boy, things don't look good for the Transformers. <laughs> Hit Girl number two, Brian. Um, Hit Girl has her new recruit uh, help her take out all of his enemies. Uh, but it's probably not a good thing that they finished doing that for him. Redneck number 11, Jen. Perry learns the truth about her secret origins. And somebody comes back. Saga number 50, Jen. Splorsh. 
so gross. Someone's is been that, reading sex criminals. Is that the first one word? Is it still good we've ever had? Probably. <laughs> Maybe. Fantastic. Uh, Avengers 686, Brian. Um, boy, Hulk shows determined to get that prize. <laughs> Black Panther 171. T'Challa and company learn who their true adversary has been all along. Despicable Deadpool 297, Jen. Is it the power of friendship? <laughs> no, it's the adversary. <laughs> Deadpool puts out a hit. And it's so very, very sad. Is Hit Monkey in this issue? No. Damn. Invincible Iron Man 598, Brian. Um, Riri kind of gets a new little team. And um, Doom retreats to the only place that he feels he can. And Old- the search for Tony continues. That was three clauses, but okay. <laughs> Old Man Hawkeye number three, Brian. Uh, mm, 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 mm. uh, Hawkeye, we learn who Hawkeye is going after, and so does Bullseye. Spider-Man v. Deadpool, number 30. Everyone fights everyone, and I'm confused of who is an LMD and who isn't. Stuff happens. Star Wars, Dr. Aphra, number 18. Uh... We see just how cold and calculating Afra can be and where she draws that limit. Long box book report is the long box book report. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, this is on me. I had the fly number one. Nothing to do with Gregor Samsa. <laughs> which would have been Jeff preferable. Jeff Goldblum? No. <laughs> no. I wish. That said... Uh, there is a tangential relation to Jeff Goldblum, oh. which is maybe old bearded men should not be allowed to do whimsical things with insects trapped in amber. Oh. Okay. Uh, this is the story of a boy. <laughs> and how does Amber feel about that? <laughs> Squeaky sound. <laughs> but I can't make... That turns back time and erases what? that what? one. <coughs> this is the story of a boy who is not paying attention in class one day and has to write a paper about heroes and is told by his teacher, well, you know, if you don't like the assignment, then you need to invent a hero who you think is good and mythic. And then he turns in the paper about the fly reason being the fly is the fly is a humble animal and the human is the most noble creature and i'm not sure that any of this is not bullshit (laughs) uh oh so a paper by a school student (laughs) yeah and as any wizened old man with magical powers would do he gives this school kid who half-assed his homework a totem that turns him into the hero he came up with. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. So the kid walks by, is on his way to the mall, because this was written in the 90s. And the mall is on fire. <laughs> the mall is on fire! We don't need no water, let this motherfucker burn. That would have been more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> 
he magically transforms into the fly and goes in and fights this pyromaniac who I'm pretty sure only implicitly, like, this is, okay, this is the early 90s. This is the most tactfully and subtextually I have ever seen a red-costumed villain implicated as a communist. It's the but not ever outright identified as one he has these comments about well this was easier in the 60s security was more lax then the people pulling his strings before he goes rogue talk about yeah well this is why we should hire people who do the work for the money and not for politics but they never outright like this is the most this is the most like gingerly communism i think communist supervillains have ever been treated outside of the current white house um (laughs) wow he got a political a ginger and a communism all in one statement that was good yeah and it worked in the professor at marianne too there you go i love that (laughs) uh and I think Mike said last week that he thought this launched with The Ray. It did not launch with The Ray. It launched with another character who is almost identical in every conceivable way to The Ray, but is not The Ray. The light beam? (laughs) (laughs) Big pause. (laughs) The light beam. Thanks, Brian. Now we got to big pause it. There was an ad in here for the other five books in this line. Uh, The Comet. The Comet. Okay. You also had The Web, The Shield, and The Jaguar. Jaguar. Nice. Yeah. Don't let Tarzan near it. It was a book. The one one generic name hero. (laughs) (laughs) It was a book. It existed. It would have faded from everyone's memory had we not drawn it from a box today. All right. Jenna's one, Brian's two. God damn Yeah. Brian, quit making your pack with the devil. Uh, yeah, Brian, yeah. stop uh, that. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can stop. <laughs> so, Rocks? Rocks. Rocks. Rocks are cool. Rocks. One might even say that rocks rock. Rocks rock. I like that. Yeah. It's kind of catchy. And if you want rocks, do you know where you should go? Uh, You know what? I know where I would go. I would go to Rock Hounds and Relics in Accra, Georgia. That is a good and correct answer. Excellent. See? Yes. Yeah. Which it's only open on the weekends now. What is your favorite kind of rock, Brian? Mm, probably obsidian. Mm. I do like it. Which, you know, I guess... Is that... Yeah, that's a rock, isn't it? Yes. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's the incorrect answer. The only correct answer oh. is rutilated quartz. Sure. Yeah. Rutilated? Well, I meant besides rutilated quartz. Yeah, yeah that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, no, like, yeah. yeah. I just assumed everybody knew that was the best. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. What'd so, you get? I, I got some Mike Allred. <laughs> Damn you. Madman Jam. 
Madman. I put that in there hoping I'd get it. Oh, man. <laughs> That's too bad. And Brian, what is Madman's real name? Frank Einstein. Frank Einstein. After Sinatra and Albert. There you go. Nice. This you'll, is you'll beautiful. Have, you'll have to notice that you'll have to let us know if yeah. that Madman jam is tasty. Ugh. <laughs> Duncan didn't like that. No. <laughs> On that note, let us swiftly cut to our interview with Sebastian Gerner. Indeed. Yay. Our guest today is the writer of Scales and Scoundrels, co-writer of Shirtless Bear Fighter, and editor of books like Southern Bastards, Black Science, Deadly Class 7 to Eternity, Low, Spread, and Renato Jones Season 2, Sebastian Gerner. Welcome to the Hello. show. Hey, yeah, welcome. Jump right in there. Hello. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thanks for being had. Indeed. <laughs> that, okay. Well, when you put it like that. Yeah, that's why I put it like that. Um, so we always like to ask everyone the same question, first time on the show. How did you get into comics and nerdy stuff in general? Um, I got into comics pretty pretty early on. Um, I was I was born in Germany, and when I was three years old, my family moved to the States. So I think my parents were... Um, made sure that there was always like reading material around to kind of spark my interest in, in English because they were obviously, you know, worried that I might not pick up the language quickly enough. And the Sunday funnies and, and, and newspaper strip comics in general were obviously still a big thing in the, in the eighties. And, um, I really fell in love with Calvin and Hobbes, which is kind of how I learned how to read and also learned how to read comics in general. Um, and then my dad still from his, own youth had a bunch of love of like Bern Hothar's Tarzan and um, Prince Valiant by Hal Foster, and those were kind of my first forays into into you know kind of comic comics like central storytelling. Um, and then I just picked it up. I was just a reader in general. I loved comic books. Um, I read a lot of um, just kind of asterisks and obliques. Like my my parents would kind of make sure that you know again then once I knew English that I would not lose my touch with the German side of of my culture. So um. Every time we went over, I would pick up stuff like Tintin, and it was mostly Franco-Belgian comics, which were very popular also in Germany, of course, that were translated. So I would have this kind of split between American comics and, and European comics, um, up until the point where I started reading um, Marvel comics around, you know, 12, 13. Um, Spider-Man was, was kind of my go-to. And then I moved back to Germany. When I was uh, 13, right around the time the manga wave um, kind of spilled over from, from France first, and and that's uh, I just kind of kept right on going. So I had this very, uh, you know, kind of healthy mix of, of comics from all over to, to keep me keep me busy. Cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, was was writing or working on comics something you always wanted to do, or were they just part of a life part of life and something that came? Later by happenstance, how'd you go from fan to creator to pro? Um, it was never something I thought I would end up doing. Um, I studied, I went to school, high school, I studied uh, Japanese, partly out of an interest, obviously, of my love of manga, but never like thinking, like, I'm going to go do this for a living. I, I thought I would go into academia or, or other, you know, fields. Potentially, but after I graduated, um, I sent a couple of, you know, like how you send out just cold resumes to, to companies thinking that someone might hire you. Um, and I was encouraged by a, uh, a friend of my sister's, um, Hornsack Pishashot, who at the time was a, a editor at Vertigo, also now a writer himself, just launched Infidel 
There's um, at Image, which is a wonderful comic. But we had been in touch sort of because he was the only person I knew who was doing comics for a living, and he was an editor, which you know was pretty big question mark for me at the time. But he was like, you should you know send out some resumes to Marvel or DC, and and it just so happened that Marvel at the time, this was the summer of '08. Um, had been going through some editorial staff changes. A couple of assistants um, had, I think, left. Um, two went back to school. One had a, had a baby. So they kind of had an opening, and I just kind of fell right in there. Um, I guess that they were, you know, resume made made some made some, you know, intrigued them. And I, I I was just happened to be in New York at the time to visit my sisters, who lived here. So it was like just this weird, like, you know, Venn diagram of luck and an opportunity where I had uh, an interview with a couple of editors. And a week later, they gave, made me an offer. And like two weeks later, I had moved from Germany back to America now, <laughs> New York, and started um, as an assistant editor at Marvel, um, and which is a job that I did for um, around four years. And that's kind of like I did not know what an editor does before I started working as one. So um, very haphazard kind of falling your ass backwards way to get into comics. But um, this... You know, first couple of years, any new job are hard, and you're learning on your feet, and especially at Marvel, where you're like working on books immediately, and there's never any like real like training wheels. You just kind of get thrown in the deep end. Um, more so, also in my case, that a couple of weeks after I got hired, there was another kind of editorial swap around, which happens, you know, every every season or so, and I ended up the assistant of Axel Alonso who was the then um, executive editor alongside Tom Brevoort and went on to be the editor-in-chief um, of Marvel Comics up until just a couple of months ago. Um, so I was his kind of assistant, and that obviously put me in a spot where I was dealing with a lot because he was dealing with a lot and, you know, stuff trickles down. So um, that kind of put me in a spot where I learned a lot really, really quickly, um, which helped, I think, kind of set me up for what I do now, which is freelance editing where you kind of need to know all the invisible parts, you know, without a publishing, uh, without a publisher at your back, you kind of need to fill all those little roles for your, for my clients, for the people who want to hire me, um, to edit, you know, what is almost 100% creator on comics. Um, so yeah, like, and then the writing kind of just came alongside the editing. Um, after editing for 10 years, you kind of just get a, you know, either a knack for it or you don't. And there was a couple of stories I felt interested in and wanted to tell. Um, shirtless kind of came about because Jody LaHoop was my co-creator and co-writer uh, at the time, also a roommate and also editor at Marvel, which is how we met. Um, we just kind of put our heads together and we're like, we want to create something for ourselves and, and put everything into a comic that we love. Um, and then scales came about because the artist Galad reached out to me. Um, also again, kind of out of the blue, and we ended up really clicking and, and putting something together that, that got picked up by Image, and, and we're doing it to this day. So there's a lot of, um, it was ne <laughs> it was never, I was never like a, a Machiavellian genius about putting me in the spot where I want to be <laughs> editing and writing comics. Uh, I was always kind of lucky enough to, to stumble into a situation where I then at least had the, the wherewithal or the, uh, the presence of mind to understand like, Oh, here's all these opportunities that I have and I'm going to work at them. And then, you know, they worked out. So knock on wood, but, um, you know, this is my 10th year in comics. So I think I'm, I'm close to sort of getting over the imposter syndrome where we're maybe at this point. I <laughs> a reason. 
or another, but you know, it never really goes away. Indeed. Uh, cool. Do either I've I've been kind of uh, monopolizing questions. Do either of you want to? Go ahead. Okay, I was going to say, so you mentioned Shirtless Bear Fighter was, uh, I think, I, I, we do like a roundup at the end of the year, and it was definitely in my top picks last year. Like, I just absolutely loved that comic. How did how did Shirtless Bear Fighter, you mentioned that, uh, Luke called, talked to you about it, but how did that kind of come together? And who had the ideas for that? Um, Jody and I were, Jody LaHoop, who's yep. the co-writer, co-creator of Shirtless Bear Fighter, um, along with the artist Neil Vendrell, who's, who's wonderful. Jody and I were roommates um, for several years while we were both um, editors at Marvel, and we really clicked, and we, you know, you, it's like the era, part of your life where you're like working way too much, living in all kinds of weird apartments in Brooklyn and, and Queens and kind of just 24 seven trying to try to live the dream. Um, and we would work together, you know, we had our books to edit and then we would go home and we would you know, watch movies and try to relax and have some beers and, and watch, like we're both big fans of, of like eighties schlocky action movies and, and exploitation and cinema and stuff like that. And those kinds of comics. And, you know, you just, you're constantly kind of like breathing, talking, you know, in, indulging in, in, in genre. And at some point, I don't, neither of us really remembers, because I think the, the beers had been flowing liberally, <laughs> but we watched a movie, which we also don't remember what it was. And I made, I feel like Jody watched some really weird, like, exploitation films, like, <laughs> really, really deep into, like, Italian, American, like, copy exploitation and stuff like that. But one of us said to a, a, a character that was on screen, that dude looks like a shirtless bear fighter. Um, just... It was like fully, like not fully formed, or like Athena popping out of Zeus's skull. And you're like, here came shirtless. And then I think it took a couple of days. And then Jody actually came up to me and he was like, do you remember that thing that we said was like a shirtless bear fighter? I was like, yeah. He's like, that should be a comic. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and very quickly, like, I mean, we love the title. The title is the first thing everyone responds to. And uh, everyone, I think at least it gets a smile out of you. Like either you like it or you think it's silly or you think it's kind of dumb but you're reacting to it. Yep. So, and we had worked in comics long enough to know that that is something that you can kind of, that's a hook you can kind of build something around. So I think we actually had to sit down and be like, what's a comic that is worthy of this title? And we very quickly were just kind of like, here's everything we love about comics. Here's everything we love about story. Here's everything we love about like how comics can ride like that razor's edge between silly and serious very effectively. I think more so than, than any other media. Um, and just built it and then, you know, had a pitch and like, we just had such a good time doing it. Like we were laughing all the time, and, uh, having a good time. It was just like everything that I think like culminated out of a really long friendship and, and brotherhood and like um, working together and just going through a lot of, you know, ups and downs and highs and lows together that kind of congealed into this really great creative energy that we were then able to, to pour into something like shirtless on top of which that shirtless kind of became the kind of comic, like basically we thought that if we never get to make another comic, um, because I had left Marvel and he had, he was working at Valiant um, at the time, but we started shirtless when he wasn't. So it was kind of like this, had a little bit of an energy of like last hurrah. Like if we never get to work on another comic, shirtless should be the thing that we're remembered for. Um, and continued that, you know, that kind of um, continued to be the, the guiding the guiding light for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, then we, we went through, you know, around, we found Neil Vendrell, who was an artist who, who we really 
um, spoke to us and, and was young, but like had such amazing talent. And, and Shirtless is like a really tricky book to draw because like we said, it's really silly, but it's also kind of funny. But you also have to do like a lot of serious, you know, the action and the, and the, and the emotional beats are very serious. So we needed someone who can do all of that. And Neil just super knocked it out of the park. And then when we pitched it, you know, Image was was all about it. Like they they definitely wanted us to to do it at Image, and we were super excited about that. And then and then that's how that came about. So it was, um, you know, a bit of a, a again like culmination of of us really wanting to do something just to will it into life. Um, and also maybe you know that we struck a chord that that we kind of created something that people had been maybe waiting for or didn't know that they wanted, like they wanted something that's a little silly, a little outlandish, a little out there, um, a little tongue in cheek. Um, it's a lot of comics take themselves really seriously, even when they're about, you know, people in spandex punching each other. <laughs> um, and every now and again, it's, it's fun to like have something that is like, we, we love this too. Like we love this more than most people, but also it's kind of really, it's kind of dumb, but it's also good to like dumb stuff. Like it's, it's important to, to, um, to in, indulge in that part of, you know, your personality and your, and your, you know, sense of humor. I like how you described it. And uh, that I remember when we read about it in solicitations, it was definitely, it was the title that caught you. Right. Uh, and then that first issue, like literally every single page you turned of it, there was, it was just like even more over the top and more over the top. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the sound effects of the, the literal, you know, bear punch and bear kick. And then, <laughs> And then you turn and you get like the house literally made out of bears. And so like, it just didn't stop. And I think once you got to that point, you, that's when you really realize this comic is just, it, it is kind of all of those things. It, it is so over the top, but still has those character moments and those connections and those story. Beats yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that that first issue, we definitely, I think we spent more time on the first issue than like, the remainder of the series put together just because we knew like we're doing for the first time out the gate, like we were doing something. I still have a, I still have a fun time talking about it is like how serious and how like meticulously well (laughs) (laughs) monocles and uh, this, this, this story about, you know, a naked angry guy who punches bears and fashions a house out of them. You know, it's, there's, there's, all this math to it is like, but no, like we wanted to, you know, we wanted people to like put this book down and just be like, I have to tell somebody about this because that's <laughs> how we feel about stuff that we love. Like you immediately want to just like share it. We're like, Oh my God, it's so amazing. And it's not being done. And and it's really fun to see people like respond to that first issue, especially like we were started going to conventions last year and, you know, people come up to the table and they're just like, what is this? Like, you know, and we like had a to like at New York Con, we had like this fake bear rug spread all over our our booth. So it was <laughs> like offering people like here's a little show, like come see the freak show. But then like actually like here's some really good comics. Like it's really fun. And yeah, that first issue, I think it's when we wrote the bear plane into it, where I was yeah. like, oh, now now it makes sense. Like this is the cherry on top. Like <laughs> if we don't have you after the bear plane, then we. You know, it wasn't for lack of trying. <laughs> it's, it's funny to me that you mentioned that because the thing I was I was about to say was, you know, there's the part of, of, at least for me, my brain as a fan of comics that goes, okay, they're making fun of this. They're making fun of that. Well, Batman names everything Bat-whatever. So, of course, Bear-whatever. That's the gag that's funny. And you go to the, the house of Bear Pelts. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the actual Bear Plane. You're like, okay, this is another level. This is not... <laughs> 
yes. making fun of this is not mean spirited. This is completely earnest <laughs> oh, at this point. And yeah, that, yeah, that, that gives that gives me permission to turn off that part of my brain and just go for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the like we talked about that a lot. Like we really wanted it. It's very easy to be to roll your eyes and poke fun at superhero comics and all the tropes and poke fun at action heroes and the whole it's very easy like it's not i'm not saying that i don't enjoy those things as well but that's not what we wanted to do with shirtless we really wanted to create exactly that way you just described like we wanted our passion and our love for these things to to shine through so strongly that the reader would be like feel nothing but joy you know just feel nothing but excitement for it because we love these things too even though we spent a majority of our early friendship like just cracking our heads together like working at marvel like how do we make this fresh how do we tell these stories with these characters again you know these characters will outlive all of us and like you're having such a hard time finding that part of yourself in all the noise and all the kind of like office stuff you have to you know deal with when you're working for a big publisher um where do we rekindle that sense of you know kind of excitement and wonder and i think that, that all of that kind of flew into shirtless flowed into it um to the point where, like I said, like we were just having such a good time writing it and creating it. Um, and every issue again, because we kind of knew that we had to, you know, kind of sleight of hand, pull the tricks off a couple of times before the story naturally like gets to the point where the reader just wants to know what happens. Like now the silliness almost takes a backseat and you want to let that, you know, very straight, very fun, very, um, I think, you know, powerful uh, little piece of, of of story about like how damaging anger can be. And like, it's funny how angry he is, but it's also um, like Jody and I both at the time, like dealing with, with anger <laughs> issues almost in a way um, that we wanted to kind of have a, a little bit of a canvas to figure some of that stuff out. Like how uh, it's a driving force, but it's also like a fire that can kind of burn you out from the inside. So a lot of that flowed into shirtless, and I think that that's another reason, hopefully, that the book kind of just has, it has, like, it's a three-legged school. Like, it has the humor, it has great art, it's funny, it's a good comic, but it also has a little bit of, like, a, oh, here's something that we can kind of relate to as readers, and I think that that's important. So is there any desire or potential for more shirtless? There is definitely potential, and there is uh, desire. Um, we have a lot of ideas. Um, both Jody and I are, are, are working on other projects right now. Mm -hmm. I think as, as um, creators who who kind of stepped into a new, um, you know, pedigree. As we were both kind of known as editors um, for those of us, who, those who knew us, knew us as editors. Stepping into you know a new limelight as, as writers and you know, as co-writers, I think we were both like, oh, we also want to do our own thing, you know, also be known as as um, like quantifiable writers in our own right. So I um, I'm writing Skills and Scoundrels now, which has been um, going on for we're just putting out issue eight is coming out next week, and Jody um, just announced um, uh, the Weatherman, which is uh, a new um, sci-fi book, which is going to be really really fantastic. It's coming out in June, first issue um, with Nathan Fox, who's a devastatingly brilliant artist and Dave Stewart on colors. Um, and that's coming out later this year. So we're both working on other projects, which are very, you know, like launching a creator on book is fun and it's great. It's a ton of work and um, it's a very, like you get one shot. It's really like, you know, you need to make sure that first shot really lands. So um, there's not that much time right now to be focusing on another project. However, Shirtless is out there. We're getting a lot of requests. People really like it. Um, the trade is doing very well. People are still like discovering Shirtless. And I think that where we left him 
time where we left the world is uh, is right is you know very ripe for for more shenanigans. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, I don't think that we've heard the last of Sherlock though, for sure. Okay, awesome. Let's talk some about scales and scoundrels. Indeed. Uh, so this is, like you said, issue eight is coming out this coming week. Uh, the mm-hmm. first trade is out for anyone who maybe hasn't taken a look at it yet. Do you want to give us maybe the quick pitch for anyone who, I mean, we, we talk about it whenever a new issue comes out, but maybe for anyone who's, for whatever reason, starting with this episode, do you want to give us just the quick down and dirty explanation? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Scales and Scoundrels is an, is an, uh, a fantasy adventure comic. Um, it's all ages or all readers, as I like to uh, try and uh, call it, because um, I feel like all ages has the, you know, you're kind of winking, nudging at the younger audiences. But we really wanted to, um, we being the, the artist Galad, who's a French animator and storyboard artist by trade, it's his first comic book. When we started out, we wanted to create something that kind of... Um, recreated those comics that we grew up reading, which are a lot of Asterix and Obelix, um, Franco-Belgian things like um, Masupilami and um, Gaston and um, Tintin, which are comics that are tend to be made for a younger audience, but that also have huge fan bases in, in, in adult readers. Um, so they're just cr- crafted in a certain way. I think uh, a more modern you know, uh, example might be stuff like Pixar films or the films of Studio Ghibli, um, which are, again... Movies that are you know have a huge you know fan base and younger audiences, but then also tell a narrative, tell a tale that resonates a little bit more with older, uh, more mature audiences. And we wanted to try and do something like that in a monthly comic book form, um, set in this really fun fantasy world, which which may seem uh, a little familiar at first. We have a lot of classic kind of high fantasy tropes, but then we play with them. We we kind of poke a little bit of fun at them, but also once again in that kind of like love it, but also you know kind of be humorous with it. Um, we, I, I was a huge fantasy fan growing up, a lot as well. And it's the story of Luvander, who is the uh, white-haired, uh, like very sparky uh, rogue and a treasure hunter. And when we meet her in uh, issue one, she's uh, classic adventure style, getting into trouble in a tavern, um, and then kind of decides at the, uh, at the course of that issue that she's kind of tired of, of being penniless and kind of just roaming and rambling from town to town. And she's going to shoot for the moon and go for the biggest caper she can think of, which is raiding this uh, dungeon called Den of Luin, which is this bottomless ancient labyrinth that no one's ever really explored. No one knows how far deep down it goes, but every legend that you ever hear about it says that there's wonderful treasure and endless wealth at the bottom. So that's all she needs to hear, and off she goes. And in the course of the first issue, she meets um, a bunch of other adventurers who are on their way uh, to the same location for different reasons. And uh, obviously things don't go uh, so so well for them. They get trapped in there uh, inside of one issue, and then she's being pursued by this very creepy bounty hunter um, who has a bone to pick with her specifically, which may or may not have something to do with a uh, big old dragon on the cover. <laughs> of the so, um, there's a bit of a mystery surrounding her um, true origin, her true purpose, um, but we explore her through the eyes of all the other adventurers that we, that we meet. There's um, Prince Aki, who's a uh, a prince from a faraway uh, desert kingdom, and he's kind of like on a fantasy rumspringa where um, he's <laughs> now where uh, it's tradition in his culture that um, the royal family, the royal children set out beyond the boundaries of their of their homeland to have an adventure to fulfill some quest that's kind of left up to them and then return home to kind of come of age and, and grow into, you know, what will soon be uh, leadership. 
Um, he's he's more of a like he's like an actual he's like a fantasy fan in a fantasy world. So he kind of just wants to have adventures, and he's so happy to be away from home and to really be free. Um, his bodyguard Koro is this, like very stern. She's literally his shadow, so she's walked in his shadow since uh, the first breath he took. Um, she's kind of there to make sure he doesn't get into too much trouble. So she's not super happy about the fact that he's you know like enamored with uh, not enamored, but he's like fascinated by Lavander because she's everything that he kind of wants to be. He's like completely free and comes and goes like the wind. And then to round out the party, we have this uh, dwarf called Dorma Ironweed. She's uh, very unlike any dwarf that we've ever, I think, seen in fantasy, where dwarves usually be are these like grumpy, stocky, bearded, like Scotch men. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Feels that way. She's, uh, she's very perky, she's very plucky, and um, she loves the outdoors. She actually does not want to live underground in darkness. She has a, she has a shameful um, secret that she's very, very afraid of the dark. Which for uh, for a dwarf is just like the biggest biggest shame. <laughs> so she loves being up and about, and um, she has her own personal reasons for having to dive back into the underground. Um, all of which we explore. So we actually end up with like a nice you know core cast of characters, and um, but the the main driving kind of you know plotline is Lavander and who she is and, and why she is. <laughs> One of the things I really... I'm sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> that's okay. No, that's, that's <laughs> awesome. That's yeah. awesome. One of the things I really enjoy about the book is how well balanced that core cast is. I feel like in a right. lot of more traditional fantasy, there's always like a standout character or two, and a couple who are just kind of eh, they're there, they're their tropes. But this plays kind of with like like uh, for a dwarf to be afraid of a dark, uh, afraid of the dark. It plays with the tropes. It plays with what we know, but it never makes that. The trope, the character, uh, uh, the the main character trait. Um, so everyone feels like everyone in the cast is likable in their own way. Yeah, everyone, they're, they're all well-rounded characters. They're recognizable, yeah. but they're not just the recognizable. Right. Correct. Yeah, it doesn't lean on just those characteristics to make them who they are. Yeah. yeah. Cool. No, that's great. Um, that was a tricky thing for me as a writer to because with Galat and I. Like I said, it was not it was not super planned. Skills and Scoundrel was not like one of the stories that that I have you know parked in the back of my head and had been waiting for a chance to tell. It was he reached out, um, and we ended up you know he was just kind of like I'm an, I'm an animator and a, I'm a storyboard artist and I'd love to you know make a comic. Maybe we can work together on something. And then after a while, we kind of got to the point where I was like, oh, I mean, maybe, maybe we can I can write something. And, and it was a real collaboration. Like we really built every aspect of the book together. Um, which was a first for me because, you know, comparing to shirtless, like Jody and I had, you know, the characters in the world and we had the scripts, all of that was written before we kind of started looking for an artist and then found Neil. Um, here it was like, kind of, we were, you know, I was down in the, like the, just at the, you know, ground zero drawing board with, with Galad and he had Luvander like sketched out. Like she was really, you know, it's almost like the mind map, like you put a picture of her in the middle and then I had to like kind of go all around it. <laughs> Once we kind of d decided what her story arc is or what her, you know, like that kind of the mystery that I can't spoil and talk about too much here. <laughs> yeah. Readers to figure that for themselves. Once we understood that we had that, I had to start thinking about how we can get readers to get there. Like, And what I felt and what we kind of talked about is that we could do it one of two ways. We could tell the reader everything in issue one, which would make issue one this giant block of lore and backstory and um, exposition, um, which is not something that we wanted to do, um, which kind of, I think, goes against the... There's a lot of issue ones out there that are just like, 
take a really deep breath. I'm going to drop a lot of stuff on you. And by the end of the first issue, you're like, oh, now I get the concept. That's actually kind of cool. I'll come back for issue two. And what we wanted to do instead was just be like, let's just have an adventure. And over the course of that adventure, you'll get to know these characters the way they get to know each other. Um, which is by you spend more time with someone, you have a weird adventure, you get locked in a dungeon with them. I mean, not in real life, but potentially. Um, you get to know them. I mean, you, know, you get to know all of them, like the parts that they want to show you, the parts that they're ashamed of, the parts that they, you know, are struggling with. I mean, I think that that over time, you know, put me in a spot where I was like, oh, we need like, we need like a, a central cast. Like it can't just be a story of her, Luvander, doing her thing. We need characters for her to bounce off of, especially because she's particularly secretive and not super interested in sharing herself with, with people. Um, that we needed to keep putting them in situations where little bits of that information flop out. And then over the course of the first arc, which just wrapped up um, in issue seven, that's when we actually are like, all right, now we gave you all the information. But also you had a really good time, hopefully, like, you know, seeing the world and seeing all the different layers, you know, of cultures that have existed in this in this universe. Because, like, the deeper they go into the dungeon, it's like an onion, like the, the deeper you get, you know, into the history of this place. Um, so it's fun that issue eight, the, the one that's coming out next week, is actually the first issue since we started that is just set out in the world where we're not in this, you know, enclosed kind of dungeon space. Um, now we get a chance to really explore this fantasy world and all the different kinds of stories we want to tell with it with the character that readers have kind of been on a really big, you know, journey on and, and know from, from that side of things. Um, and what also came out of it is that we have you know, all these other characters that we love to write um, and, and are actually, like, having to find ways to bring them back together. So um, I worked on a bunch of team books um, when I was at Marvel, you know, stuff like New Mutants and a couple of other, like, Avengers and X-Men, obviously. And they're pretty tricky, um, finding a nice balance between, you know, characters that people naturally like, but also, like, every character, has, like, every person has a story. So you want to find a way to to craft that while not, like, being like, okay, now we have to spend, like, five pages just with this one character. Like, you want to find a way to, you know, naturally have it come and go and have the reader just kind of learn about these characters as they're, you know, also enjoying it. Like, I never want the reader to feel like we're, we have to stop the, 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 like, fun. You know, like, um, I do want to challenge myself as a writer to be like, you're going to walk away from every issue knowing a little bit more about one person that might surprise you or might sadden you or anger you. Like, I want these characters to be real. Um... And it's great because Galat is just a brilliant artist and he like sells every single little moment, um, every like crinkled eyebrow or, or like rolled eye. Like he just, he's just really fantastic. Um, so yeah, it's on the strength of his like depiction of these characters that I like wanted to write them into more complicated, like emotional situations. So, um, it's really, really, I'm so, so lucky to be working with an artist like him. So you, you mentioned uh, working as an editor at Marvel. So uh, that is something that I know a lot of people don't necessarily know a whole lot about. So could you tell us a little bit about like what an editor specifically at, uh, you know, like one of the big one, one of the big companies does versus kind of what you do as a, as a freelance editor. Right. Um, an editor at, at Marvel or DC. And, and I always just mention those two because they're the, obviously the biggest publishers in, in American mainstream comics. And they're also, um, they, they still maintain like editorial staff, like at, at the highest regard. There's like, um, 
Dark Horse has editors, um, Oni has editors, and a couple of other smaller publishers I'm sure I'm not thinking about right now also maintain editors, but majority of editors in comics are going to probably go through either Marvel or DC. And what an editor does, um, and that can be down from executive editor down to assistant editor and all the rungs in between, is that you're basically, um, you're the top most responsible for any given series or, or book that could be Batman or Action Comics or the Avengers or all of the X-Men with all of their subsidiary characters and solo books. So um, it usually makes sense to like split it into offices where like one editor is responsible for, say, all the Batman books. So the whole Batman family, being Batman and Detective Comics and Robin and Red Robin and what have you. So that's Mark Doyle right now, for example. Um, and then he has assistants, and the assistants help the editor, you know, do their thing. But ultimately, what you're doing is you're um, you're giving writers, artists, creators an opportunity to tell their stories within the you know publishing plan of of the of the whatever you know is going on right now. Um, and there's different tiers. Like obviously, something like Batman, the Avengers, uh, Superman. Those are like getting the cars to the Ferrari. Like you're gonna you know, have to kind of take care of that. And then there's smaller books, there's side books, there's like mini series and stuff like that. But what you're doing is you're interfacing with creators, you're um, setting up schedules, obviously. You have to, you know, make sure that your work comes in on time, on budget. Um, you're So you're working with a whole cadre of different artists and creators, pencilers, inkers. You're also very often kind of the... Um, the arbiter of taste almost in a way like you decide like you might have it you're like oh you know we have a chance to do uh, a new book next whatever season or next year which character are we going to try and you know out of the stable of, of hundreds if not thousands of characters that these publishers have which characters do we want to kind of shine a light on because like everyone knows the avengers and everyone knows whatever the justice league but like uh what's a what's a smaller character that's like found a lot of acclaim like Iron Fist is a great example. Iron Fist is this weird 70s, you know, like kung fu exploitation character that um who was it Matt Fraction and David Aja, you know, and the editor at the time um kind of dusted off and that's another thing that editors do is like take a look at what aren't we doing? What what are the stories we aren't telling? Um where's their potential, you know, to tell interesting, uh, meaningful stories with these Again, characters that have been around for a very long time, um, and to find then writers who have an interesting take on a certain character, or find an you know a new take on an established character, then find an artist that you know maybe has a style that we haven't seen before, or um, what's a, what's a good example of that? Um, like I think Unbeatable Squirrel Girl is a, is a great example of like what a smart creative team led by a compassionate, intelligent, hardworking editor can do. That's a really popular book that if you had shown me 10 years ago that like the unbeatable squirrel girl, um, which is really funny and, and like is, is one of the highest circling, you know, Marvel comics, it would have surprised me. I'm you know, honest to say. Um, so to create opportunities like that for your creators um, to try and, you know, obviously get as much readership as possible and also to fight for your creative staff in in the kind of corporate structure of whatever company you happen to be in. So you're not the only editor, you know, being for readership eyes and whatever, you know, everyone wants to get the best artist they can. Everyone wants to get the best cover artist they can. Like you're, you're not just competing with Marvel or DC, you know, which one ever, when you work for, you're also competing with, you know, your, the other kind of publishing line of your own company. And you want to make sure as an editor, excuse me, that, um, 
your stable, call it that, um, of, of creators is, is happy, is doing the best work, is getting paid on time, um, feels like they have a voice in the larger kind of cacophony of, of, of creative shouting that goes on. And um, you need to, you know, like expend political capital sometimes to to like take a stand and be like, no, like this is the story we're telling and we're going to, I don't know what an example is, we're going to, I'm reticent to say like we're going to kill the Hulk because superheroes kill each other all the time and it doesn't really matter anything. But there are certain stories, you know, that are either risky or maybe not, you know, a little bit out there. And then as an editor, you're kind of the you're kind of arguing in front of the Supreme Court for your client, which is your creative uh, team. Um, and that's, that's like the, the full, the, 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 the frontal front burner stuff in the back, you're, you know, kind of like developing artists, developing new writers, trying to find opportunities for, you know, new voices to come in. You're always looking for talent. You're interfacing with legal, with marketing, uh, kind of everything. Like it's a really, really multifaceted job. Um, you wear a lot of hats. It's, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of different things. It's, uh, it's, communication is is very important. You need to be able to communicate very clearly, uh, very briskly. Um, you need to be creative yourself. You need to be very well read. You need to um, write and read quite quickly. Um, get notes down, um, and you need to, of course, also know how to make comics. Like down from you know thumbnailing to pencils to inks, like how to tell the story, um, because you're ultimately the last the last arbiter like before a comic goes to print at marvel or dc an editor will read all of it over 100 times and and make sure that this is as good as it can be before the stroke of midnight on friday which is usually when the books go to print so not stressful at all <laughs> <laughs> dude like we roll in around a you know 10 30 <laughs> it's cool. weekends are super free never think about work <laughs> no, it's uh, it's every single, and I, I, I'm obviously very passionate about this because I'm an editor myself. But like editors also tend to get a really bad rap, and uh, there's, uh, you know, editorial. What's the word they always use? Mandate. Editorial mandate. It's like, <laughs> I knew that was it. I love it. It's like it's in my mind. It's like Thor's hammer. It's this like it's like mallet out of like carved out of meteorite stone, and you can like swing it like a like a berserker but like it's not it's super not the case editors get like zero you know they get zero applause they get all the blame uh sometimes rightly so but like every person i know who is an, a comic book editor is like there's it, not a ton of money in it and there's not a ton of praise in it or fame so no fame no fortune it's um it's truly something that that like is is done out of passion out of love and um a lot of comic books that are great are, you know, the editor gets, has, has a, has a part of that. Um, it's the invisible hand. Like you're not, no one knows what you're doing. Every other name on a comic, every other credit, the writer can say, point at the comic and say, I wrote that artist can say, I drew that letters, colorists, inkers, everyone can kind of point at what they did. Um, an editor can't really do that. They can just be like, this comic exists because I helped make, that happen um but that's a that's a hard thing to kind of sell um but yeah it's a it's a really interesting job and it's definitely if i'm if i'm making this sound like someone out there is like interested in, in comic book editing 
it's a it's a highly creatively um, satisfying job. You get to work with it's different from like writing something or drawing something. It's a different like you're 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 facilitating like communication between individuals, between writers and artists and inkers and colorists and designers and you're helping everyone communicate better and create something truly unique, something that couldn't have come out of this group of, of creators or artists or writers if you weren't there. Um, so it is a really like hard to explain um, the, the satisfaction of, of seeing a project come together that, you know, I'm not writing myself and I'm not drawing myself, but I am um, facilitating, um, you know, individuals who have, you know, massive talents or, or crazy creative um, to achieve their best and to also, you know, get paid doing it. And, uh, and, and, you know, you want, as an editor, you want people who work with you to feel good about that work experience, um, down to like, they feel listened to, they feel like there's, you know, ideas are, are validated, um, that they get to kind of explore creative, you know, boundaries, um, and tell the kind of stories that get us all excited. You know, everyone knows what, what what a good comic is. Well, not everyone knows what a good comic is. <laughs> One of, you know, within the realm of, like, trying to do, can I do that? And obviously, if an editor is, like, just says no all the time, then, yeah, that's unsatisfying. Um, and I always try to not, you know, be that kind of editor, obviously. So here's a fun question. What is the biggest or, like, the most proud or the biggest thing that you've ever kind of stood up for a creative team to DC or Marvel and said, no, I, we really want this to happen. And it happened. The biggest, probably missing something. I was, I was only ever, I was an assistant editor at Marvel, which is like, you're, you're kind of on the lower rung um, where you're not like in the biggest possible room arguing for things. But um, I've made, I've made cases for certain story arcs to go maybe one way or another, or like where it gets, it dips a little bit too far into, you know, like there's a certain reticence to go into territory that, that could be considered objectionable or, you know, construed as, as questionable in one way or another. I don't really have an example of that, but it's more like you're, you're making a case for a certain kind of comic occasionally before uh, I mean it also has to do with personal preference a lot and having to understand that <clears throat> excuse me what I think is the best might not be the best for this particular book or this particular character um, but to find a way to make that to make your case compelling and to make you know that's something I had to learn at Marvel <laughs> very quickly is like, it's not just to be like, I want to make this comic because I like this comic, but to find a way to argue for why that comic or why that story or why this tone, this atmosphere is, is viable. Um, from both from an artistic standpoint, like from a, this would just make a good story, but then also the trickier part is, is showing that it has market value, that it, you know, that there's an audience for this kind of stuff out there. And that's, I think the, the, without having a specific detail is like, that's the trickiest part is that you need to not only argue that this is a good thing to do just because good art deserves to be made. Um, but also that there's an audience out there for good art. You know, there's not just an audience out there for the 800th, you know, return of dead Wolverine or Batman gets another 
I don't know, sidekick or whatever. Like I'm not, I have, I haven't read superhero comics in a while, so I actually don't know what's going on. No, no, no offense intended to anyone who, if that's actually happening right now. Um, <laughs> one of the earliest things I had to kind of stand and make a case for was a, was a mini series called five Ronin, which, um, was one of like, I think one of my first and only real like creative from the ground up works as an editor, which was a, a, a short kind of five week event series thing where I took five characters, uh, five Marvel characters and, and re kind of imagined them as, um, as feudal Japan samurai. So it was kind of like, a, a seven samurai as Marvel characters. So they didn't have powers, but there was like reasons why they would be construed to have powers like, um, like Wolverine, obviously the claws are a natural, you know, a natural thing. There actually were, uh, uh, weapons like that in, in ancient Japan that, that looked like claws. Um, but the idea that, you know, he can be struck down, he can be cut, he can be killed, and then he has a healing factor. We got around that by creating a story that there was actually like, he's like the 47 Ronin, if they all looked alike, like if they were all like just similar looking. Mm -hmm. So if you see one of them get killed, but then like he pops up again the next day, you would like create this legend, you know, that like the word of his legend would spread. Plus, there was this whole feudal Japanese things, like the way that um, you know sometimes dictators have doubles. Like you know, Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. had people who had big old mustaches because if he was going to be assassinated, they wouldn't know which mustache to shoot. <laughs> um, that's the thing that that happened back then. There's a um, Kagemusha is is what it's called. There's a, a famous um, Kurosawa film about it about doubles. Um, so we kind of had fun with that. We had Wolverine and Deadpool and the Hulk. And that was, I think was like, that was a bit of a stretch to pitch because it was like, it's not, it's not core central Marvel. It's like the Elseworlds thing. So, you know, but I was like, Oh, but there's an audience for that. Like example here, like, I don't know, Batman noir, Daredevil noir. Like there's, there's a certain audience out there for, you know, like exploratory series like that. Plus I was like, well, here's these five artists, it's five different artists, all of whom were a little bit harder to cast in the core central Marvel books. All of whom, though, that's another part of your job as editors to make sure that your artists have work, that you find books for them to land on. And not every artist is a shoe in for every book. Um, so here were, you know, five issues, all of which could be drawn by a different artist, which meant that all of these artists were drawing a Marvel book and weren't going across the street to D.C. in that time and potentially being hired on a D.C. book that would then, you know, compete with us on the stands. So all of a sudden I had like created a, you know, a, 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 a short series of, of, you know, potentially, you know, saleable uh, books that served an artistic purpose for myself. I was very proud of the works. One of the best things I think I did at Marvel, um, but that also solved a lot of problems for the company. It was like, we have work for our artists. It's a pretty small buy-in. Potentially we might be onto something. Um, and it was pretty easy to produce, and it came out five times. It was a five-week event, which means we put the whole series out in one month, and it sold moderately well. It definitely sold better than potentially anything else that could have come out in those five weeks um, at one time. So that's the kind of situation is where you're – I'm not, like, in there, you know, trying to overturn Hulk v. Thor, you know, issue 557 or something, but you're arguing for this comic and not that comic. Because at the same time, I could have been making, I could have been trying to relaunch Sleepwalker or something like that. Like, that also would have been a case I would have had to have made. But then I probably wouldn't have been the best person to make that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's stuff like that. Okay. How does 
So that's that's the Marvel DC side of the world. But if you know you're working as a freelance editor now, you're working a lot with Rick Remender, with Jason Aaron in books that are their properties, that are their continuities, that are. And I know I know uh, Reminder has talked in Back Matter on Seven to Eternity about how this is a world he and Jerome Opeña have been building since mm -hmm. their Fear Agent days. How does that relationship change when the company you're a part of is not the owner of the property, but rather when you're in to assist the, the people who have come up with the world, who have come up with mm -hmm. the characters, who are the final say in their own right? Right. Um so from the from the start, um, you know that I do this a bunch when asked this question. Just um, image, though I work as an editor on a lot of books that are published through Image. Image does not itself um, have editors. Um, a lot of Image books have no editors, and those that do, like in the case of the ones I work on, um, that's a case where the creators hire an editor to be on their book, with the understanding, of course, that the final say, you know, of uh, any creative decision. Um, hangs with with the um, with the creators, so there there you take the the, the magic Mjolnir editorial mandate hammer away <laughs> away from the editor and uh, put it in the corner. But what that means for me is that I'm in the room and I understand my position and um, I'm there to help. I mean, I'm doing the same thing that I would be doing at you know a publisher. The editor is there to help make the best comic possible with whatever time, budget, you know, constraints we have. Um, so I'm there to ask questions. I'm there to answer um, questions or, or propose answers, at least. Um, that can go from, you know, narrative structure stuff where the artist and the writer or the creators are, you know, kind of spinning their wheels a little bit or they're circling around. Like you could be a tiebreaker. You could kind of offer a new um, insight into it. That's what an editor does anyway is like just, um, offer clarity, like try to make a thing clear. Um, what I've found is that also when I'm writing my own stuff is that when you're a creator, you're like very, very close to it. Like you're really rubbing your face in the dirt, um, trying to figure out every angle of every character. And an editor's job is to just kind of like also do that, but then also like kind of zoom out a little bit and, and keep an eye on everything else, everything that the um, creators aren't looking at just because they're so laser focused on one thing. And it can be very helpful to have another voice in that room. And hopefully, uh, you know, you'd have to ask the people I work with. But um, I'm hoping that while, you know, a big part of having an editor on a, on a creator-owned book is that they can kind of take care of the scheduling and the production work and the whip cracking and all the stuff that, you know, distracts you from doing the creative work, um, that I'm also someone who is it's helpful, you know, hopefully to have me in the room to answer, you know, creative questions, to read beats, to... You know, just like take um, take a pass at you know what's this character about? Like, what do you think this character is about? Because it's not always one hundred percent clear. Um, I think that that's a misconception of creating. You know, as a writer or an artist, that you like know everything one hundred percent before you sit down and start writing. A lot of, I mean, I would say the majority of um, the creative work is done while you're just working. You start with like an idea, maybe an outline or a beat sheet or what have you. And then you start writing and you get into that, you know, you get into that zone in your head where you're creating. And sometimes you don't know what it is. You, like, you read it again later and you're like, whoa, this is totally different from what I thought I would be doing. Um, and that's an exciting, you know, realm to be in. That's a great, you know, creative space. But then over the course of, you know, years or you know, a whole series of, of books or 
you, you want to have a conversation, you know, you want to have someone there with you be like, is this good? Am I, could it be better? Um, and to have an editor there, hopefully that's someone who has, you know, been there with you on that journey, um, and knows the characters as you do and, and can offer you guidance, um, not tell you what to do, but offer suggestions. That's one of the things that like people think that, I don't know, writers send in a, a script and then the editor makes notes and like changes it, like just writes into it. It's like, you like offer solutions, uh, you know, pose questions, try to punch holes into it if we can, uh, just to like, how, how structurally sound is the story? How, you know, compelling are these characters? And then you send that back to the writer and then the writer makes any, you know, takes the notes or leaves them. Um, that's another question is, is, you know, do they make the changes that you're suggesting? Um, and that's cool. And that's the thing where at the end of the day at Marvel or DC, because you're the editor, because you are the, you are the employee of the publisher who owns these characters, ultimately the onus, like the final kind of judgment call has to be made by you. Um, now, I was never personally involved in, or I also never saw a situation where an editor was like straight up, I will reject 100% of what the writer has written here. And I will like, that just doesn't really happen. It's not, the system isn't set out like that. Um, there are obviously creative instances where like the writer and the editor might butt heads, but usually it's like to get a better story out of it, you know, and it's like an argument of like, what is this character actually about? And that's cool. Like conflict can be very constructive. It should be. It like kind of whittles away the, the, the you know, separate the weak from the chaff. Um, but on a creator owned book where I'm the employee of the creators where they're hiring me to assist them, you know, I always make sure that they understand like, here's, here's my thoughts. Here's my opinions. Here's my notes. Here's what I think would be probably best. But if you do it the other way, here's what I think that that means for those characters. Like, it's always like, choose your own adventure in a way. It's like, if you do this, it's that way. If you do that, it's that way. And that's a way that I can inject myself into the creative process without, like, wielding my bludgeon. Is just to um, give the creators, hopefully, a better understanding of, um, of what they are creating. Cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, we are knocking on an hour, so... Indeed. We have a couple of questions that we always end with, too. So yeah, Jim? and I'm sorry that I've been so quiet, but every time I've had a question, you've answered it within your answers. So that was really awesome for me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but I do have a question that I ask everyone. Uh, what is your favorite sound effect to write? Uh, my favorite sound effect to write. <laughs> it, ooh. I do like... I don't know. That's a hard one. Bear punch is obviously pretty high up there. Yeah. <laughs> that's good because that's a that's a good one, and we made that up. And it uh, never you, you don't use that one lightly, you know. Like that one. Yeah. Has to um, I really like to come up with like just like these like weird sound effects that you just have in life. Like I don't know, like blowing out a candle or like like sitting down. Like, but it makes like a really awkward noise or something. I like, I like to come up with stuff like that. I also really like it when artists like draw sound effects into something, um, as opposed to like digital sound effects. But I, I don't have a really good answer for that. I'll just go with, with bear punch because I think that's <laughs> that's pretty solid. 
All right, so I'll ask, and, and for you, we'll include editorially, you could do this. Um, if there was a property or an IP or a character or anything from any time period, any publisher, anything, what's something that you would like to work on or work with? It's really tricky. Um, I have a lot of stuff that I love, obviously, but I wouldn't – like I love Berserk, Kentaro Miura. It's like one of my absolute favorite comics of all time. That being said, I would never want to be creatively involved in that because that, I want I want that to be the chaos train that I just get on and just get wheeled away. I would potentially like to edit him down a little bit because – I'm worried that he won't be able to finish uh, his epic in, in my lifetime or his. Um, <laughs> I I would love to write the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for just a little bit. I have a couple, I have a pitch for them and I have an idea for a couple of spinoffs, like a Casey Jones one and a Rat King one and a Shredder one. So those would be like three mini series that would spin into a strip. Like that's the only one that I actually have. Like I could like write that tomorrow. That would be really cool. There's a couple of like really weird other stuff. I think like Castlevania could be a cool little comic. Um, there's stuff. It's like things that I love too much. I don't want to put a hand on. Um, there's famously or famously, I, I think it's a great example as Garth Ennis, I think was once he wrote judge dread. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I love Garth Ennis. He's one of the best writers we've ever had. And I think he's like, he loves Judge Dredd too much so that he didn't really feel like he could do something with them. Because when you're a writer and you love something, like, you're disinclined to mess with it. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of your job as a writer is to mess things up for your yeah. characters, make it interesting, make them conflicted, like turn everything over on a dime. Um, so that's why I'm, I take that lesson to heart is like, if I love something too much, I probably don't want to get too close to it creatively. But I'll give you the Ninja Turtles one, and I have a pitch for a Final Fight comic, which is this old <laughs> Super Nintendo beat-em-up. Um, I should down one of these days, because I love Final Fight, but I don't love it enough to not mess with it. So nice. there's that. All That's right. very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This was great. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the next issue of Skells and Scoundrels, number eight, is out this Wednesday. That's uh, right. April 4th. Is there anything else you want to pitch or give a plug? Or... Um, nope. Plug and Skills and Scoundrels. Um, we're out. Issue 8 is out on Wednesday, April 4th. And um, 9 and 10 are out consecutively in the first weeks of both May and June. And July, we'll have the second trade paperback out on July 4th, actually. So that's a good day to remember. Um, I would plug, obviously, Shirtless Bear Fighter if you haven't picked it up. First, uh, first trade paperback is out. Um, it's, it's a lot of comics, a lot of great material in there. And, um, please do check out, um, the weatherman, which is the new comic by my, uh, cohort and brother in arms, um, Joe LaHoop, um, artist Nathan Fox and, uh, Dave Stewart on colors. Um, that is coming out in June, first week of June. I forgot the exact date, but if you, if you go online, you can check that out. And, um, yeah, all the books I edit are, are ongoing. Um, so check any of those out. It's Black Science, Deadly Class, Low, Seven to Eternity, Southern Bastards, Versus, I'm forgetting a bunch, Spread. I'm sure. Uh, Spread, that's right. We just sent the final issue to print. Um, so you can get um, the trade paperback. will be out soon. So you can get all five trade paperbacks of that. It's a good series. And, yeah, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm online. People can find me 
doing what I what I did here for the last hour, which is talk too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm always always excited to hear from people, um, ask questions about comics, comic book editing. I think it's a it's a really important job, and I think that as comic comic books, not just like the comics themselves and the characters, but also the people reading them and the people making them. The, the, the spectrum is growing and more diverse. We need more kinds of editors. We need more people involved and wanting to do that kind of work. So if um, anything I said in the last hour sounded interesting about editing to anyone, if that piqued your interest, um, I'm always happy to offer more information on that kind of stuff. If you want to reach out to me at my website or on Twitter, I'm always the, um, up, the up to chat about comic book editing. Very awesome. Cool. All right, great. Cool. Well, cool. thanks again, and anytime you want to come back, we'd love to have you. Again. Oh, yeah. We'd love to come back on. This was great. Thanks a lot, guys. Right. It's wonderful. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fun. Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. very cool. Or will have been. We're actually recording this, this more or less in the right order this time. This is Gosh. the first time we've, like, not... We don't know. We don't know. But we assume that it's good. It, yeah. It'll be good. It'll be good. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I have, you know what? Belief is power. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you want, we can do an alternate take where we cut back and with, well, that was terrible. Uh. <laughs> God, I can't believe we interviewed that guy. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm rooting for the Bears. <laughs> <laughs> and the Cubs. And the San Francisco Bears. <laughs> anyway. And the shirtless Bears. <laughs> no, only the Bears that wear shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and a collar and necktie alone is not enough. <laughs> nice. Uh. Or just a vest, a vest, whichever one of you in the Hair Bear Bunch will be wears a vest. <laughs> okay. No, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. I'm yes. going to stick with that was fun. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. We're already having fun, yeah. so. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we even wanked some chung. Who knows? No, that's tonight. That's tonight. Uh, We're fun with that tonight. Wait, I thought yeah. tonight was for fighting. Oh, yeah, you're right. No, okay, we have to reschedule Wang Chunging. Yeah. Oh, gosh. All right, well, we'll sort that out off air. Uh, we would like to thank, again, Sebastian Gerner for joining us this week. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, also, a quick PSA. Raven the Pirate Princess uh, could use a hand in sales. So yeah. if you have been... Uh, Jeremy was tweeting about this uh, last week. So if you've been waiting to pick it up or on the fence about it or wanting to give it a try and just haven't had a chance yet, now would be a great time to go ahead and do that. It's a wonderful book. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anyone who's read it and disliked it. I think mm-hmm. it just needs a little more attention. That's exactly Indeed. right. Yeah. 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 It's very good. Go get that book. Yes. Do it. Uh, we'd like to thank Chase Parker, as always, for our intro voiceover. We are available on podcatching devices of your choice, as well as on our website or on uh, geektaco.com. If you want to support us, feel free to share us with friends, rate and review us on iTunes, or visit our Patreon page and support us in that way. Patreon.com slash panelology. Yes. Whichever of those options you choose, we appreciate. Yeah. Yes. And if you choose none of them, Thank you for listening anyway. Yeah, we're glad you listened. Oh, yeah. Uh, but rate and review us. That's super helpful. Yeah, it is. <laughs> All right. Anyone got anything else? Nope. I don't think so. All right. I'm Alex. I'm Jenna. And I'm Brian. Huevos Rancheros, everyone. Mm-hmm.